0: Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding, whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Today I'm joined by Ellen Maloney. Ellen has her own experience of an eating disorder as well as OCD and autism, which she's here to talk about today to discuss the different treatments she's had and also how the different diagnoses affected that. Hello, Ellen. Hi, thanks for having me. No, thank you so much for coming on. It's lovely to finally meet you. I feel like we've spoken so much kind of on messages, but never actually spoken. So it's lovely to finally meet you. If we get started, so... I thought that a really good place to start for the listeners would be maybe for you to describe your experience Um, maybe if you want to start with how your eating disorder developed.
1: Yeah, um, just to kind of keep it very brief because my story is long. Um, I developed anorexia when I was 12. Um, I just started kind of high school which um, for me was quite stressful um, I think it's stressful for a lot of people for different reasons. For me, um, I, I'd always been very kind of anxious and overwhelmed um, growing up um, from a very young age. And when I started high school, that just kind of felt like a hundred times worse. Like it just felt like the entire world was kind of pressing in on me from every different direction. Um, and I, coped with that by stopping eating. Um, and that's kind of that's basically how it started for me. Um, I was, I don't know how to phrase this. Um, I was kind of lucky in the sense that I got treatment quite quickly. Um, just because I became medically quite unwell and because I was quite young. Um, I didn't get appropriate treatment um, for a very long time. Um, maybe we'll come back to this at some point but um yeah I think like the treatment I had kind of made things worse um so I spent most of my teenage years and my 20s in and out of hospital um before kind of finally starting to work with a treatment team that kind of understood me a bit and kind of I've been working with them for the last few years um and that's kind of where I'm at now um doing much better having been working with them and getting
0: the right support yeah excellent well I mean it's amazing to hear that you're getting the right support now but I do think um just going back to what you were saying about your treatment I think it's often quite good for people to understand maybe what kind of the what went wrong um so could you maybe I mean you might not have a definitive answer but you said that it, it wasn't the like appropriate treatment to start with what was it that made it inappropriate for you when you first started? Um
1: I think there's like there's a lot of different ways I could answer this. Um for me, I think one of the things that's like important to be clear about with these disorders um, is that it's not a physical problem. Um, and I think a lot of the ways I was treated was as if I had a behavioral problem. And the approach was very much like if they could just kind of modify my behaviour, then everything would be fixed. So I was on very kind of strict behavioural programs. I kind of like often I would be in kind of a ward where I was the only person with an eating disorder, where it was the kind of reward and punishment program. So, um, like for example, I would have a meal plan and. I had to follow it and if I did there would be kind of rewards the rewards would be things like phoning my mom the punishments would be things like not being allowed to shower um wow that's like that does not happen (laughs) as much today um it's quite common in um around the world and other kind of places I've had treatment in America and um it's much more kind of used there um that or at least not Maybe not with such um, extreme examples, but the kind of like progressing through treatment and getting more privileges as you move through a program is very much kind of based on the same thing. Um, And I think like for me, that is just a really unhelpful kind of way of reporting treatment. Well, it sounds Um, like
0: you were in prison more than kind of a hospital for treatment.
1: Yeah and I think that's like how it felt as well like it never once felt like I was getting care or help for a mental health problem it felt like I was a problem to be solved and like it just set up a very kind of combative relationship between me and my treatment team Mm. Um, it never once felt like we were united um, fighting an illness it just felt like me versus them
0: Yeah,
1: Um, and I already felt like so alone um that was really kind of not helpful
0: (laughs) did it sometimes feel as though you were kind of doing those positive behaviors that they'd asked you to do literally just to kind of get the reward rather than actually you know being engaged in therapy and kind of going towards recovery for kind of a better life it was more for that short-term reward
1: yeah absolutely like the concept like the idea of recovery never kind of crossed my mind mm-hmm. it was always just about like I want to go home this weekend I want to go home like eventually I want to be doing kind of the next thing um but it was never about like what do I want out of my life when mm-hmm. like where's the bigger kind of picture and um I know we'll come back to autism as well but I really struggle with kind of big picture thinking mm-hmm. and this really just kind of broke it down into like well if you want I smoked at the time um if you want to be able to smoke you have to do it x y and z um and I think like concepts about recovery are really difficult to grasp when you're you're quite young and when you're in the grasp of an eating disorder but there was no kind of encouragement to think about like did I want my life to be more than eating disorders and hospital and my world had become so small that I had nothing outside of my illness. I had no friends. I I, I really had nothing. And then this treatment regime was just kind of reinforcing the fact that my life was really just a trip to the cinema, (laughs) Um, a cigarette, uh, a phone call with my mom, a shower, a mattress sometimes, like an extra blanket. Like it was it was really nothing like if, if i hadn't been depressed before those experiences i would have been depressed by the end
0: yeah i i can't really get my head around it because i think it just sounds so awful um and also in a in a weird way kind of what you were saying about that not being able to see the bigger picture it's very similar to i think how a lot of people like how people are cognitively when they have anorexia is you know being very detail focused and not being able to see that bigger picture so it's almost as though the way that your care or if you want to say care the way that they were treating you was actually sort of like anorexia itself in the way that it was being approached.
1: Yeah and I think like absolutely there's like when somebody's really unwell there's no point in coming in on the first day of somebody's admission to hospital when they're really unwell and sitting down and saying so like what's your philosophy on life like where are you going with this like there's not really headspace for that but that doesn't mean that that those conversations should never happen um and nor does it mean that treatment should only ever be about like the next kind of step mm. there has to be space for both
0: yeah absolutely i mean you know fundamentally at the end of the day from from what you've described it it sounds quite inhumane um and at the end of the day you know you are a human that has goals and aspirations and regardless of whether they seem blurred at the moment because of the eating disorder or whatever, I guess that is the role of the therapy team is to help, you know, for you to understand who you are without the eating disorder and kind of what you want to achieve. So how did things change then when you went for this new treatment team? How how did they adapt things so that it was
1: more appropriate for you? Um... that's kind of a difficult question to answer um I think the biggest difference first of all um previously treatment had always felt like it was done to me like something kind of very coercive and controlling Mm. um whereas this treatment team felt much more like instead of being this over authoritative um force were people who kind of got alongside me and were like Where do you want to be going? What do you want to be doing? Um, So it was very much kind of guided by me, led by me, 100% kind of about what what I felt able to do Mm. in that kind of moment. And that process took a really long time, but it meant that my recovery was kind of steered and directed by me. And whether that was the really small stuff at the beginning, like those kind of very literal next steps of like what i added to a meal plan or whatever or whether it was the kind of bigger stuff like am i ready to start a college course do i want to be going to uni do i want to be like where is my life going which like in recovery become really big questions like who am i without my eating disorder what what do i want my life to look like um they were kind of there to be like well what do you want your life to look like and i think when you've had an eating disorder for a really long time, um, treatment kind of stops far like too early on in that process, and you're kind of left to figure that out um, on your own. And then, like, that's a really difficult kind of process to to like navigate yourself because you've you've only gone through the the very basic steps of like making a sandwich and pouring your cereal and then you're stuck you're left with those big philosophical questions that can like for me like become really paralyzing yeah. um so it was really good to have that support in kind of figuring out the rest of like kind of what got me in this situation in the first place <laughs> yeah I think
0: you've knocked a like a really good nail on the head there with what you were saying in that a lot of the time the treatment for the eating disorder tends to be food focused and you know like you've just said there's there's so many other things you know it is a food issue because it tends to be that people will you know use the food to to manage situations or to numb the feelings or to communicate things but ultimately it's like what's going on beneath the surface that you kind of need to touch on and I I think like you said a lot of people do miss out on that because it's very much here's your meal plan once you can follow that you know let's get you out the door and get somebody else through um and I think you mentioned before that you had like intensive treatment for for your anorexia so is that what you're talking about there um or was that something yeah
1: yeah so this treatment team was originally set up because there was no inpatient facilities like in my local area um so they were set up to where possible prevent people being sent far away from home Mm -hmm. um so when I started seeing them I saw them like five times a week sometimes more than that um and they could they would come to my house and they could do blood tests here therapy they could do meal support they could take me food shopping they had like Nurses, dietitians, therapists, psychiatrists, healthcare assistants, like to do kind of everything an inpatient unit could do in theory, but they would do it with me on my own, which um for me was really good because it meant everything was so individualized. Mm-hmm. Um, I always found that in inpatient treatment, everyone gets kind of this cookie cutter kind of treatment where it's just kind of the same and um I struggled so much with that because like none of the rules seemed to make sense Um, and there's so much competition between patients and you'd just be kind of looking at other people's like care plans and being like well why is she allowed a 15 minute walk and I can only have 10 and like why do they get to go home on a Saturday but I can only go home like once a month and why are they allowed ice cream and I have to have like chocolate like it just get so ridiculously like petty and competitive and again like because your world is so small you're just like this is all that matters to me like and it's it's ridiculous so like having my treatment at home meant that like I wasn't distracted by anyone else and like some in some ways that was really hard because I had to focus on myself like the only kind of I don't know if I can swear on this but like the only bullshit was like my own like because I think like sometimes it's just a distraction technique like you can ignore your own issues by like focusing on other people's but um it I, I find it really helpful Yeah, I
0: imagine as well, one thing that I I mean, I've never experienced inpatient um, treatment, but something I've always thought about is kind of when you then leave inpatient treatment, if if you have like developed skills and stuff in, in an inpatient ward, they must be very difficult to transfer then to home life because you've gone from, you know, being kind of bed bound and somebody giving you meals to then having to, you know, navigate more everyday life skills. So I guess for you having it in your own home and then come to you and go to the shops that must've been really beneficial towards your recovery to be able to develop those skills to then when you didn't have, well, I think you said you're still kind of working with them but I guess, you know, t- to then not have that support you, you've got an easier transition than going from inpatient
1: to the world. Yeah, and it also means that like you're doing it kind of on your own terms So Mm -hmm. in a hospital, again, like, because it's kind of mass-produced, like, therapy for everyone, like, you're working within the limits of a hospital, so, like, everyone gets, like, the same kind of food, the same kind of rules, whereas at home, you can be like, well, like, I know, like, when I make lunches at home, these are the kind of foods I like, this is the kind of situation I'm in, so, like, that's what you work towards, and that's what you build on, and for me, like, working through like with my team I was able to think about well like I want to be going to these kind of cafes I want to try these foods and it was never about like well let's sit around with a group of 20 patients and like think about where we want to go for dinner like that always just felt like so ridiculous to me and so kind of counterproductive and I can see why it happens and like why eating disorder units run the way they do but like I don't find them to be like helpful places for the most part
0: yeah I think something that's just come to my mind as well from what you were saying is I think a lot of people um through having an eating disorder also almost lose that sense of autonomy and it sounds very much like what you've just said there like you know you decide what cafe you wanted to go to and you decided you know the food that you want to eat and that sounds really fantastic, because I can imagine being in a group setting, it would be very easy to just go along with, oh, that person said, let's go there. So I'll, I'll be happy to go there. But for you to actually make that decision, was that something initially that was difficult and kind of you developed that skill throughout?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think as well, but it's difficult, but it's super important. And I think as well, when you've had an eating disorder for a really long time, and for me, like, I'm in my 30s, so over 20 years, it was part of the process has been about, like, figuring out, well, what kind of foods do I even like? Like, Mm. it's fine for me to go out for a group, with a group, but, like, part of that process is figuring out, well, like, is this the kind of food I want to eat? And, like, so there's the permission part of, like, giving myself permission to try these foods, but then also giving myself permission to be, like, do you know what? maybe this is considered like normal by like staff in an eating disorders unit but like also turns out I hate this food and like that's okay and like it's kind of I think when you spend a lot of time in an eating disorder unit you get kind of bombarded with all these messages about like what's normal and like in order to be recovered you have to do x y and z to be normal and I think working through recovery on your own is sometimes like working through those things and kind of being in a place where you can challenge them a bit and being like well is this normal for me is this what I want my life to be it's not always the like prescribed definition of normal everyone has like the same breakfast everyone has the same lunch and on Friday there's always fish and chips because we're in Britain and that's what we do and they're like this is this is like what normal people do and nor it's all kind of in like in like I'm doing air quotes but like it's always like oh normal people sit with both feet on the floor at all times and like I'm like really I quite like sitting with one leg tucked under the other and they're like no that's that's not normal and they're like normal people would not go out for a walk in the rain and you're like normal people sometimes have to go to the shop in the rain (laughs) and they always they come back with these weird responses like no it's not normal to cut your toast into four pieces and you're just like What is normal? Yeah, says who? And like, where are you getting your definition of normal? And then like, after I was diagnosed autistic, I had to kind of go back over these things and be like, some of these things I do because I'm autistic, Mm. not cutting my toast into four, but like some of the ways I sit or some of the, the like things I do. And I was like, really like, go away with your like definitions of normal and let me find my own. Um, yeah. just, just stop. <laughs> <laughs> and, and
0: talking of um, your autism diagnosis, that was something that I wanted to speak to you about today as to kind of how that affected your eating disorder recovery. Um, when did you find, when did you get diagnosed? Was that before or after
1: you were diagnosed with an eating disorder? Um, so it was way after I got diagnosed in 20, end of 2019, beginning of 2020. Um, I had been diagnosed with obsessive compulsive personality disorder, um, a few years ago, um, which I didn't really kind of have much of an opinion about. Um, I don't, I don't have a lot to say about that really. Um,
0: (laughs) Just before we go on, sorry to interrupt, how does obsessive compulsive personality disorder differ to obsessive compulsive disorder just in case people listening aren't aware?
1: Um, So they're completely separate. Obsessive compulsive disorder is intrusive thoughts and compulsions to kind of um, counteract the thoughts is a very brief understanding obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, It might make sense if I say the next bit, but basically um, I was copied into an email from a doctor um, who was talking about obsessive compulsive personality disorder. And she said that basically what we diagnose in adults as obsessive compulsive personality disorder, we now diagnose as autism in children and young people oh, okay and I was like huh that's really interesting because I'm diagnosed with um, obsessive compulsive personality disorder so I looked again at like the diagnostic criteria for autism and um I've I'd only I'd never really looked into it much before because I'd seen I'd seen some of the kind of awareness videos and it it was always, like, a young child, um, usually a boy. Um, the recent campaign that the Scottish government had done had, or the National Autistic Society had had a boy walking through a shopping centre and he was very, kind of, overwhelmed. And I watched it and just, kind of, thought, like, oh, my God, like, I am so overwhelmed walking through a shopping centre. Like, if I'm overwhelmed, I can't imagine, like, how much worse it must be to be, like, to be that overwhelmed (laughs) um and like I've since learned that like that video was made by somebody who's not autistic and um like I get sensory overload and they had been trying to portray sensory overload in through the eyes of like an autistic person based on the perception of somebody who's not autistic if that makes sense okay um anyway so I started like reading up um about autism, specifically in girls and women, because a lot of the kind of awareness raising videos and stuff I'd seen are had been about like boys and men, um, which is where a lot of the research has been historically. Um, and it, it, it looks like a lot of the criteria for obsessive compulsive personality disorder and autism is very similar. Okay. Um, but different.
0: Okay. What are the similarities? Primarily.
1: Um, I guess like the obs- like attention to detail, perfectionist, anxiety, those are the kind of similarities, um, kind of rigid thinking. Um, all the kind of stereotypical things, the differences would be that autism is something you're born with. It's neurological, neurodevelopmental. Um, you're you're born with it basically it's how you're wired um, there's also much more in the sense of social communication um, whereas obsessive compulsive personality disorder I, would, I think I'm not a psychiatrist but I think would be acquired
0: really nice explanation I think I think it's just good for people to be able to hear kind of what are the similarities because you know before you said then um, that it was you know, you were diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder. I didn't know what the difference was between OCD and I wouldn't have thought that um, obsessive compulsive personality disorder is more like autism than OCD. So I think that's something really good
1: to kind of speak about. I think what's confusing is there's so many misconceptions and myths and stereotypes perpetuated about what OCD is. Yes that the kind of how it's portrayed in like pop culture is that's kind of much more along the lines of obsessive compulsive personality disorder than actual OCD so when you see like somebody on tv like lining up their books and organizing stuff and like having their room in a particular way that's much more that's not OCD that's much more like obsessive-compulsive personality disorder.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Or even autism. Like the organizing and like all that kind of stuff. Obsessive-compulsive disorders, the intrusive thoughts.
0: Sure.
1: Um, and then the behaviors to kind of counteract those. Um, for me with OCD, I also got diagnosed with OCD quite late because my compulsive behaviors are also thoughts, which I didn't realize were compulsions because they're thoughts. And again, the stereotype is like the washing hands or the shutting doors or the counting or something. Mm-hmm. Um so I got diagnosed I think probably 2016, 2017, and got medication and I've been really lucky in that the medication has really helped me. Um, But I've had OCD since I was about three, and it's purely mental, um, which, like, I still, like, I find it quite weird. Not weird, but, like, strange how little is known about it.
0: Yeah, and I imagine, I mean, again, I'm making an assumption, but if it's something that you've had since you were three to then get a diagnosis when you're older I imagine would be a little bit strange because you it's kind of your
1: norm. Yeah and I think for me it's quite confusing because like so intrusive thoughts can be part of an eating disorder they were certainly part of my eating disorder they can also be part of autism mm. um, and so they're there's definitely an overlap of where one thing ends and one thing begins and I'm still kind of unraveling that and I'm picking that mm. and it, it's not so much that it really matters in terms of I'm much more interested in like I guess like how I experience the world and like like that's that matters more to me than like oh there's a thought is it OCD or like Mm. I don't really think in terms of like that kind of labeling um my experiences but I do I think like it can be useful in terms of it's especially in terms of like acceptance versus kind of not maybe not cure but what do I try and change and what do I work on accepting? Um, And the intrusive thoughts is something I've really struggled with. Um, And the medication has helped a lot, but like there's still kind of bad patches where I, I don't really know what's happening with my brain. (laughs) Mm. Um, So that's a bit stressful.
0: I think that's a really interesting point. What you've just said about um, kind of, with with the you know with the autism and the um obsessive compulsive personality disorder and the eating disorder it's I think often when people get diagnosed and they're in recovery it's almost everything especially with an eating disorder every behavior has to go um and I mean this might be a controversial thing but I often think that especially in my recovery I never wanted every single piece of it to go because some things that I um kind of developed I guess or that were just part of my personality which predisposed me anyway that were that kind of you know made the eating disorder what it was actually sometimes I find that helpful in life you know I am very I've Got very much perfectionistic tendencies. And I do have to, you know, sometimes say to myself, let's rein it in a little bit. That's not so important. It doesn't need to be absolutely perfect. But, you know, I've got that drive to achieve. So, you know, obviously, that behavior, I don't want to focus that around food or, you know, exercise and stuff like that, because that is not great for me. But when it comes to other things, sometimes those qualities, you know, they can be beneficial. Um, Is that something you've experienced? with your diagnosis um you know
1: like I'm so glad you raised this because I think it's really important and something I thought so much about um because before I was diagnosed um so I was saying about like how in hospital they talk so much about like this is what normal people do and like if you cut your toast into two slices like that's normal so because I think so like literally I'd really kind of um I guess like what's the word? Not um. Like, I guess I'd kind of um, internalized the idea that like if I do all these things, then I can be normal too. Mm. And although I wasn't aware I was autistic, I was aware that I felt so different from everyone else, and I'd struggled so much with these intrusive thoughts. And like I'd had my illness for so long, but um, it sounds ridiculous now. Maybe. But like, I really just kind of thought like, if I can just eat my like toast in two slices and eat my sandwich sliced in two, and if I can have my two scoops of mashed potato at my meal and like whatever, like I'll be normal. And like, I will go like to work from nine to five and like do whatever, like do whatever they tell me to do. And like, I will be normal. I won't go for walks in the rain and. I'll like do my shopping at Tesco on a Sunday because like that's what they've said like normal people do (laughs) and like I was very much like every time I left hospital I would be like okay so I've got my like checklist of like normal people things and like it just didn't work like that's not how you like become normal um and I think that like I'm kind of losing my chain of thought but like basically like getting diagnosed with autism um, was very much like then for me very kind of freeing because it's been has given me the ability to be like to kind of really reject that and be like I'm gonna figure out what's normal for me but also kind of like it's made things a lot more uncertain like I'm I'm not really sure where I'm at in terms of accepting or figuring out what's normal for me because part of me is still so so desperate to just have that like why can't I just just be like everyone else and then like I have like days I'd say probably 70% of the time where I'm like I'm fine with being like there's no such thing as normal but there's still like I think just because I spent so long kind of being indoctrinated <laughs> where I'm like, I could just be normal if I could just eat that toast and and do those things. And like, it's, it's weird to let go of that and just kind of be okay with following my own path of figuring out what's normal. Um, and I think as well, like having been diagnosed people around me have just kind of accepted where I'm at um which I think is quite hard as well because I don't want to just kind of settle and be like oh the way I am is how I'm always going to be because this is all autism stuff Mm -hmm. and like because it's very easy I think to just kind of fall into like oh well I'll always be like this when actually I know that like I could a lot of this is like eating disorder stuff and I could work on it a bit more and I could like push further. But like now there's just this kind of general acceptance of like, oh, Ellen's always like that. Like she's autistic. She's like weird with food. It's like, it's an autism thing. And I'm like, well, well it's not actually. Yeah. But like now that I've been diagnosed, it's like nobody really cares anymore. Yeah. Um, there's no kind of striving for like recovery because that's a very almost taboo word like what does recovery look like for an autistic person yeah um and because they're so interrelated food and autism like I'm not sure where one ends and one begins
0: Mm. I think that's a really interesting and I'm really glad that you kind of said that at the end of talking about it because I think a lot of people you know you could go down the thought path of well you know if you've had an eating disorder for however long if people come just you know even if you haven't been diagnosed with anything else I know that in the past people have always said like um oh you know like oh we've not done we've not put this in your food because we know you don't like it or you know we've we've done this specific thing for you because we know that's how you like it and that almost I guess is not kind of what you were saying but it's similar and I think it almost reinforces the fact that you can get away with those behaviors because it's almost that's almost become your normality so I guess that's like another layer of difficulty in recovery is then recovery is then working through you know who actually am I you know like you said what do I actually like is this behavior an eating sort of one or is it know an autism one and I imagine that's really challenging challenging like a
1: challenging process
0: to work through.
1: Yeah and I think as well like autism not that I can leave it aside but like as just having had an eating disorder for a very long time there's the issue of like people kind of giving up on the idea that you will ever kind of not have an eating disorder And um, this is what I was gonna say earlier, but like, I've always been kind of almost militant in the idea that like recovery is possible for everyone. Like a full recovery from eating disorder is possible. And like, the reason I believe so strongly in that is because I've seen it happen so many times with so many people I've known from like the years I spent in hospital and on different like online forums and stuff. Like, I just know, so many people that have fully recovered and like gone on to live like completely free and happy lives and like an eating disorder is 100% not part of that. And like, I I do believe it's possible, but I think in the last couple of years, um, my kind of position on that has like changed because I think, recovery I don't really know what recovery is and I don't know what recovery is but I don't know how to define it I don't know what it means to different people um this is something that has come up um in the treatment guidelines we've been writing in Scotland um so although these people like have no eating disorder in their lives like I don't really know what that means for them Um, and they they say they're free they're happy they've got no I I believe them and I I just I guess I don't want to say like I don't believe recovery is possible for everyone I think I don't really know what that absence of an eating disorder looks like um, or what that how that kind of concept works and I also don't know if I don't. I guess it, I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't really understand how that process happens or what makes it possible for some people and not possible for others. Mm. Because although I believe it can happen for anyone, everyone, I know that it won't, and I that. I don't I don't understand
0: that mm. I think it's a really interesting point and I think I you know I completely agree with you but I think it's almost kind of what we were saying before in that you know the normal there's definitely like you know a normal recovery which is people go out for cake every day and they're happy and you know they I don't
1: know what are the things I can't think of what people want, but they are—they're like they're the equivalent of like the two point four kids and the four wheel drive, yeah. and they're like, yeah, absolutely. But I guess,
0: I guess, like we've been saying throughout, you know, everybody's recovery does look different. Um, it's like what you said, you know, filling that, even if it's just a small gap.
1: I think, like, I think it's such an interesting discussion, and I don't think it's—it happens enough. No. and I think like the, I think it can only really happen between people who've got lived experience of an eating disorder because it's such an inside internal experience and I think like previous like when we were writing the treatment guidelines for sign um the all the definitions are like medical ones and they're all very like they can't really get to the kind of internal experience of having an eating disorder so they're all based on weight um and that's useless like this is a mental health problem Mm -hmm. um and I think it's really problematic um I also like really kind of reject the idea that this is something you'll struggle with your whole life um I also don't really know what that means when people kind of say that Does that mean like they struggle three times a day when they're having their meals? Does it mean every six months when something goes wrong in their life, like they have a wobbly couple days? Like I find it, I find it a difficult and depressing concept (laughs) to grasp. Um, And I also know it's not true for everyone because as I said, it's like, I do know people who have like, this is not part of their life at all.
0: Like, I don't think we talk about, we talk about quasi-recovery, but we only ever talk about how to not, or how to identify it, and, you know, how how you don't want to do it because you don't want to get stuck. But I don't think people ever openly say that it's a place that they're at. I feel like, and, and this might just be me, you know, in my, in my internalisation of it, but sometimes I think that, you know there shouldn't be shame with any mental health condition at all I think sometimes people don't speak about an eating disorder because they're ashamed but I think there's almost more shame when it's that kind of quasi in that quasi recovery because it's almost you know you're so close but you just can't quite let go
1: yeah and I also think like for people who are neurodivergent um it is kind of not a taboo to talk about mental health problems um but in terms of like talking about recovery in terms of identifying like if you've had an eating disorder in terms of identifying the kind of bits like what what am I still working on what's like what Do I accept what's an autism thing? What's an eating disorder thing? Because for me, I feel very much like I don't really understand fully, like, like where I'm at with anything. And, like, after I got my autism diagnosis, I was just kind of left with it. Um, And my psychologist is very nice um but she doesn't know much about autism um I don't know much about autism um and it just kind of feels like okay now we know why my brain works the way it does um but like how do we leverage that like what like what do we do differently like um can we get me unstuck from like some of the areas I was stuck in with my eating disorder like where do we go from here and that's kind of it's just kind of frustrating that there's the overlap of autism and eating disorders is so high and and there's nothing mm-hmm.
0: so that was going to be my next question of you know within your treatment
1: what do you think needs to be different but um well, like, there's little kind of pockets of stuff happening um, around the UK. There's, like, the Peace Pathway in, from King's College in London. They've developed a program for autistic people with eating disorders. Um, it's estimated that at least, like, 30 to 40% of people with eating disorders are autistic. Wow. Um, so there's, like, a lot of suggestions from them about how to kind of modify your environment. Um and things like that in terms of making kind of therapy and treatment kind of better um the problem i have with a lot of a lot of the stuff that's kind of come out so far is it's from a neurotypical kind of framework so it's kind of taking existing therapies and treatments and modifying them for autistic people instead of thinking about how do we support autistic people um and thinking like from uh like autistic framework. Um, And I think like the approach is not really quite there yet. Um, Because I think I think as well, like there's not really enough um how do I say this diplomatically? Like, well, okay, like outrage. That like the general like the treatments we have, right, for eating disorders they're not very good. Like, the outcomes are pretty bad. Um, So I think, like, modifying the, like, outcome, the treatments we've got for, like, almost half the eating disorder population, um, knowing what we know about the treatments we've got, that they don't really work, Mm -hmm. um, knowing that they're either going to be ineffective or harmful for, like, the autistic population. Like, why can't we do better, like, is my real question why is there nothing kind of more interesting radical like there, there just doesn't seem to be anything very innovative we're just adapting the environments we've got adapting the treatments we've got and like eating disorders have like such poor outcomes such de- devastating outcomes i just find it quite frustrating mm.
0: I think it is I think like you said there's just not enough going into it um often I think that within eating disorders there's often kind of loads of research everywhere in like lots of different things and sometimes I do think I wonder what would happen if people came together I mean obviously I think you know you need to try different things because you need to see what works but I don't know, maybe it would be more productive to kind of get a big team together to focus on one thing. And then if that doesn't work, do another thing rather than loads of different people doing lots of small things and then, you know, not really getting anywhere that way.
1: Yeah, Um, I also feel like a lot of the research is kind of maintaining the status quo. Mm. Like, and not really doing very much kind of not really doing anything that new or interesting and like we've had the same kind of outcome rates in terms of like the number of people that recover the number of people that that stay chronically ill the number of people that die forever like since I was like started treatment um and I just I don't understand how we just kind of accept it and don't do something a bit more kind of groundbreaking like the treatment team i had um they don't even exist anymore they had all their funding siphoned away to fund like an inpatient unit which is more expensive and the outcomes are like worse but like health boards fund things like well governments fund things like so short term um it's fine that it really frustrating
0: <laughs> um I think that, that is the problem like you've just said is is the funding um and it's almost you need to have i think because we've had certain therapies for so long now the the, the research you need to have and the kind of reliability that you're going to need to have in order to kind of take over that is going to need to be like you say groundbreaking um but, you know, to start with that, you know, we don't just need the funding to provide it. We need the funding to kind of understand what is needed and whether things work. And I guess, you yeah, know, that's not there. I it. think
1: we, we also need, like, much more research, like, that leads to clinical practice. Um, so when we were doing the science stuff, I found out it takes 20 years for research to, like, translate into clinical practice, which which is like astounding that's crazy because um, there's like some really cool and interesting research studies yeah. happening now around like eating disorders and autism but like to think that they are going to then lead on to more studies that will then like lead to more like treatments yeah. um like people cannot wait and it's just oh it's it's mind-blowing
0: yeah yeah well I feel like we had such a good little conversation there that was brilliant and um conversations I think that often people would avoid but are so needed to sort of you know work out what is going wrong um and what do we need to improve um I've got a couple of questions from the listeners for you so I think you I think you kind of said this earlier, but I'm just—I'm going to ask the question anyway because it's what somebody asked. Um, but the first question was: when you kind of think about your autism and the obsessive compulsive personality disorder and eating disorder, do you see it as one condition,
1: or do you see them as kind of separate? Um, I see them as separate. I don't think of autism as a condition. Okay. Really.
0: They did question whether condition was the right word to use, So I'm glad you picked up on that.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, I think of autism as just kind of me. Mm-hmm. Um, there's quite a lot of discussion and debate around like autism and whether it's um, not so much within the autistic community, but in terms of like professionals and parents and carers, um, just because... Um, I guess like there's no kind of me without autism is kind of the best way of describing it. Um, whereas in terms of like OCD you could remove OCD and I would still be the same, but I experience the world as an autistic person. Um, everything I think, see, smell is through autism. Um, so I don't think of it as a kind of disorder or a condition because it's just kind of how I am.
0: Sure. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. I think that's a really nice explanation. And I think again, that's another question that maybe people wouldn't, you know, normally ask. Um, maybe something that they'd be scared to ask. So thank you for, for answering that. Um, and then the other one as well, um, I guess is probably a question that, you know, people might not drop into normal conversation um but was how do you kind of manage or I guess feel I guess might be a word um with having you know quite a few different labels
1: um I don't really use them I don't really talk about them I don't introduce myself with them um they don't really come up um came up for this podcast um unless I'm talking to like a doctor or that kind of situation I don't really kind of describe myself using labels um and if I did they wouldn't be the diagnostic ones um aside from autism just because as I said that's kind of explains a lot about how I process the world Um, I wouldn't really use labels
0: yeah I think that really demonstrates um when you were saying earlier about kind of your treatment and how you were able to think about who am I kind of further from this eating disorder or you know whatever because I think one thing that a lot of people struggle with is kind of having the eating disorder as their identity and then kind of transitioning away from that so it's really nice to hear that you know it, it doesn't feel like something for you that you have to I mean I don't think people would you know introduce themselves and say hi I'm blah blah, blah and I have an eating disorder but I think often you know people's identity just kind of scooped around it so
1: yeah I think like it's taken me a really long time to build any kind of identity outside of it Mm-hmm. Um and now that I have one. Um I wouldn't say I'm protective of it, but like my eating disorder is the least interesting thing about me, I think.
0: Absolutely. Well, Ellen, thank you. It's been so lovely to speak to you. Um, I feel like this podcast has been really good for kind of answering, you know, talking about things that maybe people are afraid to talk about. So thank you so much for coming on and speaking to me today.
1: Thank you. Thanks. Bye. If you enjoyed listening
0: today, you won't want to miss next week's episode, so be sure to subscribe. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support, they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support, or talk to someone you trust.